Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. No matter where you are in the world, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Whose World Is This? with Junior Renee Bobrun. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in and welcome to this ongoing conversation that is now in its, I think it's 95th episode. And if you're a returning listener, again, thank you for tuning in and giving me your divided attention. I know that sounds a bit facetious and a bit snarky, but I've been using that term divided attention for many, many episodes now because we've been speaking about what's been going on with the youth and how they're being pulled in so many different directions and how me as an adult, how I'm guilty of it attached to certain devices and digital this, that, and the third. And now I've gotten the habit of charging my phone in one room and and actually uh you know working in another whether i'm on my office laptop things like that when i'm just working at my things and i noticed that having my phone right next to me while i'm working has been a distraction where i'm looking at it and this that and the third so i keep my bluetooth headpiece i keep a little bluetooth thing so i can i'm within earshot of any texts or phone calls that i may be receiving But there's really no reason to just pick up a phone that's not ringing for no apparent reason, except just to have it. And and that's very, very important because I remember when Blackberries first came out and that was happening. But in any case, we're going to have a conversation today about divided attention and why I've been using it. It's something that I've just been saying, but I realized so many things that I've gone through with technology and and I've empathized with the youth and what they may be going through and all the articles and all the things I've read and all my revelations. That's what ends up coming out in these freestyle sessions that we have where I'm speaking for an hour and a half, two hours, no edits, no breaks, oftentimes no notes, most time, 99% of the time. So it's crazy because I just came across a couple of emails And I looked for specific articles that I knew I had stored that I hadn't seen in a while. And I found an article dating back to 2017 that I think you guys are going to find interesting. As a matter of fact, it's two separate articles. But I want to share them with you because we've been speaking over the last couple of episodes about what's going on with this world that we're in. And we're speaking about banning guns, but not banning other things. We're not speaking about the intent. In intent and impulse and things like that and we're going to get to that and I have an article here that has many credentialed individuals that have pretty much framed helped frame the life that we're living the 21st century or the second decade in the 21st century first world life that we are living right now that is that's pretty much our phones are a big part of that now as opposed to back in the days Back in the days when I was a kid, when there was one phone in the house and that one phone was in my parents' room. Okay, that was it. And that phone didn't do anything except take calls and make calls. You can receive a call or you can make a call. That's it. Period. Nothing smart about it. Okay. So before we get started with that, I just wanted to say thank you for all the donations we've been getting. Our cash app is dollar sign J-U-N-B-E-A-U. That's dollar sign June Bow. Our Zell is my first name and last name at Gmail, Junya Bobrun at gmail.com. That is J-U-N-Y-A-B-E-A-U-B-R-U-N at gmail.com. Um, the reason why donations are going to become a big part of this thing that we're doing here is because I want to get I want to upgrade the uh, my setup as far as these uh, podcasts and these conversations are concerned I want to bring in more people into the fray I don't want it just to be me speaking I want to have experts and interesting people I've 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 uh, mentioned before that I wanted friends certain people that I've met across my travels that I want them to tell their interesting story as well. And we can have another conversation. That's going to take more equipment besides my microphone and laptop, et cetera, et cetera, a little, you know, it's going to take more than that. It's going to take one of those little pieces of equipment. I, I, I sound like, I feel like I sound like one of those fundraiser guys. It's like, Hey, can you please help us? We need some equipment, but that's exactly what it is. I want this, this conversation to pay for itself. And I want to add value to the conversation by bringing 
more people into the conversation, which is I, which is what I feel is the most is the easiest way and most effective way to add value to a conversation is add more, add more depth, add more people, add more gravitas, more experts, more intelligent voices. Okay. But I just, you know, it's important that people know that oftentimes I'm giving my perspective on things, but they're rooted in research. They're rooted in revelation. They're rooted in someone who's looking for a higher truth, not just to be heard. Because do I want to be heard? Yes. Why do I want to be heard? Because I think that there are certain things that need to be discussed that may not be being discussed or maybe not being discussed with the urgency or gravitas that I feel it should. So what we do here is we long form it and we speak about it at length. And maybe to some, they may even consider it ad nauseum. I don't know, but you get what I'm saying. So with that, without further ado, after, you know, we've done the house cleaning, you guys know um, housekeeping, you guys know what uh, websites and what cash apps and what Zells to use and things of that nature. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple podcasts and things like that. I want to get into these articles. This is a particular article that I had, and I think it's several years old. It could be more than five years old, maybe more than that. I don't know. But it's a very, very important article. And I'm going to read excerpts from it. Just so you don't think it's just June rattling off at the mouth all the time. I use these articles when I find them to cement the things that I've said. Just because sometimes for some people it may seem as if it's obscure what I'm talking about. So June, it's not that deep or serious. Or they're thinking this is just my perspective. But each one of us out there can always find someone to agree with us. We're going to find some other schmuck to agree with our opinion. But when I have experts that are actually the, the, the originators and the progenitors of the things that I'm actually speaking about, and they're the ones who are speaking out almost in the same tenor and tone as I, well, I mean, the chips are stacked that I'm, I've been right and not wrong. Right. Just saying I'm, this is not a competition as to who's right and who's wrong. But what I'm trying to do is cement a certain level of credibility because I under I am responsible for speaking to you a truth um, as as effectively as I can decipher it or articulate it. OK, I take speaking to people, the general public very very seriously i don't care if i have six downloads 60 downloads or 600 downloads of the show it doesn't matter i'm putting this thing out there and once it leaves me i have zero control over it so it's important that before i get on here i don't just speak willy-nilly and random random with, with with a certain level of random flippancy we don't do that we can't do that i can't do that if, every, if, every, if people out there want to just pick up a microphone and a camera and decide whatever version of themselves they want to show or whatever thing that comes out of their face, first thing that comes to mind, they'll say, that's them. That's not here. I have a responsibility to make sure that the things that I'm saying, whether they be, whether they be provocative, offensive, inflammatory or not, that, I'm, that it, what I'm looking to do is improve and illuminate and educate to a certain degree and enlighten, hopefully. Right? Without further ado, let me read this. I can't remember the name of the article, but I just took a bunch of little pieces. So I'm going to read it to you guys. Okay. Briefly, here we have a man. His name is Justin Rosenstein. He has tweaked his laptop he, and his operating system. He's blocked Reddit. He's banned himself from Snapchat, which he compares to heroin, by the way, and imposed limited uses on his Facebook account. But even that wasn't enough. The 34-year-old tech executive took an even more radical step to restrict his use of social media and other what he calls addictive technologies. Remember, these are not my words. I'm reading now from the article, okay, people? So the words addictive technology, that's not me being using certain uh, colored superlatives or whatever, colored words. Rosenstein even purchased a new iPhone and instructed his assistant to set up a parental control feature to prevent him from downloading any apps a 34 year old tech executive people this is me talking a 34 year old tech executive bought an iphone and is instructed his assistant to set up parental controls a grown man instructed his he didn't do it himself he didn't trust himself to do it he's a tech executive you think he can't use an iphone he didn't trust himself enough to put the parental controls on his phone and stick to it. 
So he told his assistant, he gave his phone to his assistant and said, you know what? You do this because I'm not going to do it. Because remember, it's a tech is it. This is not some old person with two left hands. They're 90 years old and you just hand them a smartphone. No, no, no. This is a 34-year-old tech executive born in the bosom of this technology that we are in. There was, there was, a, there was probably some Wi-Fi in his hospital, you know, when he was born. So listen, listen up. No, there wasn't, though. He's 34 years old. That means he was born in the 80s. Or was he born in the 80s? Yeah, well, 90s almost, right? Yeah. And anyway, um, so listen to this. So he asks his assistant to set up these parental controls to prevent him from downloading any apps. And listen to this. He was particularly aware of the allure of Facebook likes, which he describes as bright dings of pseudo-pleasure that can be as hollow as they are seductive. And this man, Justin Rosenstein, he should know, right? Because he was the Facebook engineer who created the like button in the first place. Okay, people? So when I say these crazy things, and they're like, June is being emotional about this topic. He's going in. Let's just say I got the info. Let's just... Let's after 90 something episodes, let's just trust me. That's a scary word. Okay, trust that I've actually done some diligence beyond the fringe, beyond the peripheral. Okay, let's just say if I didn't do a deep dive, I did a medium dive. Let's just make that assumption before I decide before I decide to crack this microphone, open it and press record. And then after recording, publish. Let's just say that for me to spew the way I do and babble for God knows how many minutes long. Let's just say I know a thing or two about a thing or two about the subject that I'm alluding to. And I'm not being an alarmist. It's not what I do, even though oftentimes the truth is jarring. And may cause a certain level of angst and alarm at first listen or first occurrence, but it's good for you in the end. Okay? In any case, here we go. So if a tech guru is doing this, what is this saying, ladies and gentlemen? This is a tech guru. This is the guy who created the like button who's asking his assistant to take away the social media, um, his social media access. The man who created the like button. I continue. Listen to this. He said a decade after he a decade after he stayed up all night coding a prototype of what was then called an awesome button, Rosenstein belongs to a small but growing band of Silicon Valley heretics who complain about the rise of the so-called attention economy. Remember when I said thank you for your divided attention? I had no idea that this was a term. When I saw this term, I put it in bold print. And I was like, wow. He has grown. He has. He belongs to a small but growing band of Silicon Valley heretics who complain about the rise of the so-called attention economy and Internet shaped around the demands of an advertising economy. Remember what we were talking about when I kept saying we're living in a world of America and because we're in such a we're, we are a consumptive society and we are a consumptive economy. So things become disposable because we're waiting for the new thing. It's not about adding value to something as it gets older with time. This is not an heirloom economy in a consumer economy. You got to get rid of that thing in a year or two. Get the new joint. Oh, you don't got the new one. You don't have the new update. Oh, my such and such something plus plus dot extreme max plus it got the other feature and it's got another button. Ooh, I got to get rid of my fully functional thing that I have that cost me a bundle. When you consider that most Americans are only making about 15 to 25 an hour. So these items that we buy, these are hours. These are it, it can take you up to 50 to 60 hours of work before taxes to even buy these items that you're now just disposing of to get the new version consumption consumption trends and the need for more because what you have is not enough not only are you inundated with more data but also more advertising 
Do you understand that the, com the, the advertising industry, and I didn't see this, my little, my little teenage whatever self in New York City, I didn't understand how advertisers were going to salivate at having a place, being able to see all that we see when you consider the amount of hours that were on our phones. So they know what sites we're clicking on with the cookies and the privacy and the algorithm. And they know what our age is, our gender, our race, our, our zip code. Um, oftentimes they know what we eat. So all of this, I didn't realize that big data was a thing. So when I heard terms like big data and stuff, I go, wow, they're collecting this information on us and it's better than gold because they can tell us where to go to get the gold and do this, that, and the third. So, not, so now advertisers have more access to us than ever before in our lives. Before it was just a couple of commercials on the TV and a couple of billboards when we leave our home and we're on the highway. Now think about after every single YouTube video you watch, commercial, hmm? even during the YouTube videos, you have certain videos that are monetized to the point where they have several commercials while you're just trying to watch something. Huh? Every time you watch an Instagram video or, or something or some, somehow, some way, the advertisers have more access to you. And if you're watching commercial television, by the way, there are 17% more commercials on the air. Just, this is June talking. 17% more commercials. I had to look that up because one time I was watching a show and I said, damn, I went to the kitchen. This is no lie. I went to the kitchen and made a sandwich, a full-on sandwich made some juice, I'm drinking, I made some juice, ate half of my sandwich, got hungry, made another sandwich to make up for this sandwich that was about to be gone, got back to sit down to watch the show, the show wasn't back on yet. And I just looked at the screen like, wait a minute, how long have I been watching commercials? So I went online and I said, commercial times, average commercial times, 2021, 2022. And it showed first article was from consumer something something watch dot this and, and a bunch of other credible sites. And it said, yeah, you, you have um, you're watching you're watching 17 percent more commercials because uh, networks are trying to make up for the ad revenue that they're losing by people watching videos on their phones. So terrestrial television, etc., is looking to make up for that by more advertising time. So. No time in the history of the world have you been advertised to more and advertisers have never had this level of access to you. It was just televisions. It was just billboards. It was advertising on cars, maybe a couple of shrink wrapped vehicles. That's it. But now look at us. Now look at us. So this is what we have. More data, more advertising. And with every video clip, and segment is accompanied by you being told, you, you know, by you, um, you know, pretty much being told that you got to get this or you got to get that. Do you want more free time? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Well, buy my course, buy my service, take my trip, do this, that, and the third, buy my soap, buy my car. Consume, consume, consume. So now this man, Justin Rosenstein, who was the 34-year-old Facebook engineer who created the like button, he said, it is very common for humans to develop things with the best of intentions and for them to have unintended negative consequences. There is a growing concern that as well as addicting users, technology is contributing towards so-called continuous partial attention, severely limiting people's ability to focus and possibly lowering IQs. Continuous partial is contributing to us going towards continuous partial attention. Remember when I said thank you for your divided attention? Because I know you're probably listening to me and texting and, and, and you know, looking at something else and shopping for some stuff on, a, on, on, on Amazon or whatever the case may be. Or maybe you're on Chavez House while you're on the phone with, uh, while you're listening to me. You're on the phone, you're, you're on ChavezHouse.com buying books and notebooks, which I, which I um, encourage you to do. And then you're texting a friend or two and you're texting them on Facebook, uh, Facebook Messenger, uh, Instagram DMs, WhatsApp Messenger and your regular phone. And the television's on and the TV's on and you maybe you have it on mute. And guess what? At the same time, your laptop is open, too, because maybe the website isn't isn't loading fast enough on your phone. So you have your laptop open. I'm speaking from experience, people. 
I'm not, I'm not admonishing you. I've done that. I've had that day. And I have those days where my phone, I'm doing one of two things on that thing. I'm on my laptop doing one of two things on that. And then the TV's on, possibly on mute or not. Partial, continuous partial attention, divided attention, and which is severely limiting a people's ability to focus and possibly lowering IQ. One recent study showed that the mere presence of smartphones damages cognitive capacity, even when the device is turned off. Rosenste Rosenstein has gone on to say that everyone is distracted all the time. And so that's why I'm saying, do we even watch TV shows anymore? I remember I was watching a premiere of a particular show, and it was a premiere. This was a couple of years ago, and I was just in. I didn't. I, I texted everyone that I knew five minutes before this show started, and I said, "Listen, tonight's the night that such and such is going to be on." Blah 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 blah. I had some people say, "Oh, I'll just catch it tomorrow. I'll stream it later." But most people wanted to see the premiere, so I literally turned my phone. I never turned my phone off, so I turned my phone off, and then I turned it back on, and then I put the ringer down. Because I was like, I, I, I know people are going to text or whatever. So I, I turned off notifications and I watched that whole hour and a half premiere of this show. Really good premiere. And I looked at my phone and I saw my friends and family who were texting me blow by blows while they were watching it. Like, oh, man, did you see that part? Did you see that? And I said to myself, yeah, I saw it. I didn't have time to pick up my phone. I didn't have time to pick up my phone. And then when I went online, I saw some of my friends had filmed the show while they were watching it and put little clips of it on their social media pages. They couldn't even give full attention to the show for the hour. And then Twitter was going, I don't have a Twitter, but then when I went online, you know, finding, looking for reactions to the show and you know, and they were showing people that were tweeting live tweets while the show was going on. How are you supposed to fully experience and immerse yourself in that experience if you have continuous partial attention and you're worrying about everything else? You're distracted all the time. Everyone is distracted all the time. I've seen it. In any case, so, so I'm wondering what gets our full attention? Maybe sex. Maybe at this point when one person is looking at another person, I think that's the only time we're not distracted by the, the technology that exists around us. Because when we're watching media and television, we have all of our things on. We're in the gym. We have headphones on. We have our phones. We're looking at videos. Sometimes you're not even concentrating on the, on the muscle, on the, on the mind, bus, mind muscle experience where you're trying to really breathe life into these exercises by really focusing on certain body parts and things like that. And when you're listening to pot things, you know, I, that's why I always tell people, if you're going to listen to me while you're working out, make sure it's when you're just doing Stairmaster, elliptical, you're walking or you're cycling and just listen. Because I, I, I used to do that and say, you know what, I can just focus on my 25, 30 minute cardio and sit-ups. But when you start doing those muscle act activities, I want to focus on that. But with this continuous partial attention, I'm wondering when in the day are we giving things our absolute undivided attention? Nothing gets our full attention anymore. So in 2007, Rosenstein, who was one of a small group of Facebook employees who decided to create a path of least resistance, a single click to send little bits of posi positivity across the platform. Facebook's like feature was wildly successful. Engagement soared as people enjoyed the short-term boost they got from giving or receiving social affirmation, while Facebook harvested valuable da data about the preferences of users that could be sold to advertisers. The idea was soon copied by Twitter with its heart-shaped likes, Instagram, and countless other apps and websites. It was Rosenstein's colleague, Leah Perlman, then a product manager at Facebook, and now on the team that created the Facebook Like, who announced the feature in a 2009 blog post. She's now 35 years old and is an illustrator. 
and she too has grown disaffected with Facebook likes and other addictive feedback loops. She, is his, she has installed a web browser plugin to eradicate her Facebook news feed and hired a social media manager to monitor her Facebook page so she doesn't have to. Now, one could argue and say, well, June, those are probably just disgruntled employees. It's like you're working at a particular fast food restaurant. You're going to get tired of the burgers there. You could be right. And you know what? Even while reading this, even though I, uh, I was in agreement, remember, you always have to play devil's advocate and ask yourself a fundamental question. I could be wrong. They could be wrong. This could be a lot of other things. Think like a lawyer. Think like the opposition. Think counter. To, to what the narrative is. And I could say, well, you guys are two Facebook employees that were burned out. You're two burnouts. You, you, you don't want, Facebook reminds you of work. We don't work at Facebook. We're, it's just social media to us. You know what I mean? It wasn't a 40, 50, 60, 70 hour a week grind. So it's like someone who worked at a fast food joint and all of a sudden they can't even look at the sign anymore because it makes them look. You know, it could be that. But let's read on. Let's read on. Okay, she says, one reason I think it's particularly important for us to talk about this now is that we may be the last generation that can remember life before social media. It may or may not be relevant, but um, they're now questioning today's economy as far as how this stands. Now, listen to this. It is revealing that many. <sighs> this is what I want to stress to you guys. This is it right here. It is revealing that many of these younger technologists are weaning themselves off their own products, sending their kids to elite Silicon Valley schools where iPhones, iPads, and even laptops are banned. They appear to be abiding by a Biggie Smalls rap lyric from their own youth about the perils of dealing crack cocaine. And that term was never get high on your own supply. Okay, now I know probably many of you out there have heard before that um, Silicon Valley people don't send themselves to the same schools as you know normally or normally compensated people. Okay, because people who work in Silicon Valley are abnormally compensated. They're getting paid three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. They have stock purchases. They're they're making quite a significant amount of money. But this is very important. Why is it that? You're being fed advertising. You're being fed social affirmation cues and likes and things of that nature. And these same people who are giving you the technology are not allowing their children to be exposed to that technology. Now, I knew I was hearing several years ago that many technology gurus were um, um, people in Silicon Valley and people who worked in tech were making sure that the weekends were web free. Or I, I like to call it instead of Wi-Fi, it was Wi-Free or Wi-Fi free. Like they made sure that their kids weren't on there. But I had no idea that they had schools in Silicon Valley now. Ironically, the hub of all of this technology, the headquarters for all of these companies that have given us all of these different ways for us to live a contactless life with the rest of the world, so to speak. But just in this digital fear sphere. So these, the, the very same entities that have created the technology and the very same executives that have created this technology now are sending their kids to elite Silicon Valley. Remember that word. That's a very important word, ladies and gentlemen. Elite Silicon Valley school. You know what that means? That means that the average consumer that's scrolling on these sites for countless hours a day they don't have the means and the resources to send their children to the very same elite schools where iPhones, iPads, and even laptops are banned. Okay, I'll let that sink in. So one morning in April, designers, programmers, and tech entrepreneurs across the world gathered at a conference center on the shore of San Francisco Bay. They had each paid up to $1,700 to learn how to manipulate people into habitual use of their products. A man named Eyal, 39 years old, the author of Hooked, 
how to build habit-forming products, has spent several years consulting for the tech industry, teaching techniques he developed by closely studying how the Silicon Valley giants operate. He says, the technology we have turned into, the technology we use have turned into compulsions. It's not full-fledged addictions. It's the impulse to check a message notification. It's the pull to visit YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter for just a few minutes, only to find yourself still tapping and scrolling an hour later. None of this is an accident, he writes. It's all just as their designers intended. Okay, continue on. He explains the subtle psychological tricks that can be used to make people develop habits such as varying the rewards people receive to create a craving or exploiting negative emotion that can act as triggers, feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain or irritation and prompt an almost instantaneous and often mindless action to quell the negative sensation. This same man who's giving us this information, who wrote this book about uh, um, how to make your product a habitual habit-forming product, a consultant to Silicon Valley, is telling us right now that the psychological tricks that the designers use are there to exploit our negative emotions that can act as triggers, feelings of boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, and indecisiveness often instigate a slight pain. So listen to what this man does. After he finished this talk with some personal tips for resisting the lure of technology, he told his audience he uses a Chrome extension called DF YouTube, which scrubs out a lot of those external triggers he writes about in his book. And he recommends an app called, I think it's called Pocket Points, that rewards you for staying off of your phone when you need to focus. Finally, he confided the lengths he goes to protect, to protect his own family. He has installed in his house an outlet timer connected to a router that cuts off access to the internet at a set time every day. He said the idea is to remember that we are not powerless, that we are in control. But are we? If the people who built these technologies are taking such radical steps to wean themselves free, can the rest of us reasonably be expected to exercise our free will? Now, I know it may sound crazy. Some people out there are saying, well, June, it's just a phone, June. It's just a phone. There are, we're going to get to that. It's just a phone. It's not that serious. So listen. Tristan Harris, former Google employee, has said all of our minds can be hijacked. Our choices are not as free as we think. Harris is a graduate of Stanford University. She studied under B.J. Fogg, a behavioral psychologist revered in tech circles for mastering the ways technological design can be used to persuade people. Many of his students, including Eyal, have gone on to prosperous careers in Silicon Valley. I'm letting this stuff sink in, people. Because it's going to round about to why we need to get to these babies. Okay? You have behaviorologist B.J. Fogg at Stanford, a behavioral psychologist, who's revered in tech circles for mastering the ways technological design can be used to persuade people. Okay, did you listen? He's, he's revered in tech circles for mastering the ways technological design can be used to persuade people. And many of his students, including Ayal, have gone on to prosperous careers in Silicon Valley. I'm I reason why I put that particular passage in bold print is because that was to counter anyone who thinks their phone, their smartphone is just a phone. Your smartphone is infinitely more more intelligent than you are. Forget about it from a technological perspective. Forget about the level of science and engineering that, that went into it and the business minds to, to create a full global supply chain to get this thing to your doorstep with the parts coming from all over the world. So forget about the logistics and forget about the engineering and the technology involved. I'm speaking about the mind masters and influencers that have now 
now that these phones are so smart, you have the other smart people, the other geniuses and brilliant manipulators that are now Stanford behavior, behavioral psychologists who've mastered how to take advantage of triggers of isolation and loneliness and, and, and boredom and feed that to advertisers. Okay, we continue on. So, here we go. A few years ago, Mr. Marcellino, 33 years old, left the Bay Area and is now in the final stages of retraining to be a neurosurgeon. He stresses that he is no expert on addic addiction, but he says he has picked up enough in his medical training to know that technologies can affect the same neurological pathways as gambling and drug use. These are the same circuits that make people seek out food, comfort, heat, and sex. All of it, he says, is a reward-based behavior that activates the brain's dopamine pathways. He sometimes finds himself clicking on the red icons besides his apps to make them go away, but is conflicted about the ethics of exploiting people's psychological vulnerabilities. And listen to this last statement. It is not inherently evil to bring people back to your product. It's capitalism. It's not inherently evil to bring people back to your product. It's capitalism. But this is very important because I don't know if you guys have ever read Aldous Huxley. I have Aldous Huxley books. Very good book. And he has a quote. And Aldous Huxley once said, that coercion was less of a threat to democracy than the more subtle power of psychological manipulation and man's almost infinite appetite for distraction. So he's pretty much saying in translation that if you're thinking that, you know, your control or being controlled is going to come from a form of some sort of authoritarian government figures, some strong man or strong woman, you know, waxing monarchical or authoritarian. And if you think that's going to be the way, he said, if you think that's the biggest threat to democracy, he says, nah, the more subtle power, it's going to be from the more subtle power of psychological manipulation and man's infinite appetite for distractions. So listen on. The dynamics of the attention economy are structurally set up to undermine the human will, he says. If politics is an expression of our human will on individual and collective levels, then the attention economy is directly undermining the assumptions that democracy rests on. If Apple, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat are gradually chipping away at our ability to control our own minds, could there come a point, I ask, at which certain democracies no longer function in the way that they're supposed to. Hmm. And will we be able to recognize it if and when it happens? And if we can't, then how do we know it hasn't happened already? That's a very important statement. Remember what I said in previous episodes. We do not have the full understanding of the side effects of this technology on society. But you've had many people who want to legislate and regulate Twitter. They want to legislate and regulate Facebook as a utility. This has been a talk amongst people for, dec for, for years. I don't want to say decades, but for, for, for many, many years now, for several years now. And maybe you're starting to understand why there's certain people in certain circles who have had certain informations about this technology and are saying, whoa, like the guy said earlier, I can't remember which one of them it was, that Rosenstein who says, yeah, you, you can be well-intentioned and, and the thing that you've designed has unintended consequences. You know, that's, a, that's, that's more of the innocent approach. We built it, but we had no idea it was going to be. But yet you hired behavioral psychologists to keep them on there. You did all of that when you started it. The color designs and the schemes that was used to keep people on the site. The whole idea is to grab their attention. It's the attention economy. And it was that from the beginning. Facebook wasn't selling products. There was no Facebook marketplace when it started. All these social media sites, they were selling us to each other and selling us to advertisers. They were working on our vulnerabilities, as they said. 
our boredom, our isolation, our need for social affirmation, our, structure, our, our, our triggers, all of them are being used. Dare I say abused. So when this man says, will we be able to recognize if and when it happens? And if we can't, then how do we know it hasn't happened already? How do we know that Google, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, that have been gradually chipping away at our ability to control our own minds? How do we know if that hasn't happened already? And then I take you to exhibits A and B's and C's when I look at these young men in a country that has a growing income inequality, more divisive rhetoric. I'm not going to say more divisive rhetoric. This is the most divisive rhetoric I've heard in my time, but I don't believe so. I feel that because we have the ability to let out all of our divisive rhetoric into the metaverse, it seems like we are more divisive than ever. But are we more divisive than the 60s? <laughs> the hippies, the blacks, the civil rights, the Navajo, the, the Native American rights, the Chicano rights, the black rights, the white rights, and what's right and what's wrong. Are we more divided than then? No, we just have more means as which to voice our separate and different opinions. Correct? So for me, I don't want to say this is the most divisive time. This is the most binary time in American political political history in the last 100 years. Eh, I don't know about that. Just by looking at the anecdotal evidence from the 50s and 60s, I would say we are way better off now in, the, in, in a certain degree. To a degree, it's not the same. But it, it, in many ways, it's more dangerous now because so much of the conversation is centralized to these little forums and places so now everyone's in their echo chamber and these kids now are finding websites where everyone gets to be angry together so this kid who has no friends no social skills cues whatever doesn't have the rules and tools or jewels to cope with negative stimuli is now online with hundreds thousands of people just like him and a, a young man turns from a human being to a monster. So when he asks, how do we know it hasn't happened already? I'm saying it's happening. I'm saying right now that one of the most contributing factors to a lot of the rise in certain isolation, isolations and depression in these young kids is their inability in their most formative years to deal with the neural manipulation and the psych and the psychological manipulation that is occurring right now that facebook whistleblower came out she told you how the executives were having meetings on how to how to how to exploit a young lonely kid who's been how to just take advantage how to create dopamine i mean there are people far smarter than me or whoever that have studied the human mind and its capacity and its thresholds for happiness and sadness and its controls and triggers and all of these devices are being used on our devices all of these 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 psychological devices and the psycho spiritual and they're all being used on us they're all on our devices right now the device ironically that you're listening to me on now, most people wouldn't do this podcast. They would this conversation. They'd be like, yo, June, I'm not going to do that because that's going to take money out of my mouth. I'm telling my, like I said, if I can illuminate, improve, enlighten, educate a bit, that's, that's what I'm here to do. If that means you turn this off and never listen to me again, okay. But don't just, don't, don't, don't not listen to me and still plug into all the other nonsense. Listen to me, you know, but in any case. The same forces that led tech firms to hook users with design tricks, he says, also encourages those companies to depict the world in a way that makes for compulsive, irresistible viewing. The attention economy incentivizes the design of technologies that grab our attention. In so doing, it privileges our impulses, not over our intentions. So yeah, all this technology is designed for compulsive, irresistible viewing. That means you just can't watch one video. You can't just watch one clip. You can't just watch one TikTok vid. It's a bunch. It's a bunch. And it privileges our impulses over our intentions. That means privileging what is sensational over what is nuanced, appealing to emotion, anger, and outrage 
the news media is increasingly increasingly working in service to tech companies, Williams adds, and must play by the rules of the attention economy to sensationalize, bait, and entertain in order to survive. He says that the tech industry right now is the largest, most standardized, and most centralized form of attentional control in human history. So we have to ask ourselves a question, too. Are we going to blame big tech? Are we going to blame the engineers, some kid who just wanted to just work in Silicon Valley and some person who's just a math whiz, a tech whiz, who just excelled at, you know, STEM and STEAM? Are they the ones to blame? Are the corporations to blame? Are they? Maybe not. Are we to blame that we have these social triggers? Why are we so prone to negative impulses as human beings why why are we attracted to the sensational why are we a species that doesn't dismiss the sensational as 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 pithy hmm? as something that is just uh, not worth our time or attention why does it bring us tension we have to ask ourselves some serious questions about how evolved are we that technology knows that if it bleeds, it leads. That's not technology that created that. When you watch your news and your news starts off with who was kidnapped, who was shot, what car accident and how many people died or, or were injured. And it doesn't start with the cat in the tree that was saved by the fireman. It doesn't start with a, 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 a little girl's lemonade stand somewhere in the suburbs or something like that. It starts off with stranger danger immediately in the news today breaking news there's a car accident on such and such if it bleeds it leads that predates the internet that predates mark zuckerberg and elon and 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 and, and uh bezos and and all of it, it predates social media there's something about us as social mammals that has to be addressed and and we could we can have another conversation about that but i'm just pointing pointing that out so just in case people are out there going hey june we still have free will no one no one told people to go on their phones and this that and the third and, and people are very 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 people have a tendency to dismiss and underestimate how much of what they do is creatures of habit how much of what they do was told to them of how to do how much of what you do the reason why you work this many hours and you just say, hey, June, that's the way it is. The reason why you vote for this party or that party, the reason why you watch this and don't watch that. How much of that is based on how you've been socialized and programmed? We really, really, really overestimate how many decisions we made out of just pure revelation and innovation of intellect and spirit. We really, really, really do overstate that. We think that we are freer than we really are. Let's take technology out of the equation. We do. And it's something that I've been speaking about from episode one, that zero to seven, we, we, how we were hypnotized in our earliest years, in our single digit pupa year stage, says a lot about who we are, a lot about how we inform ourselves well into our adulthood and our, in our old age when we become parents and grandparents and uncles and aunties. Okay, so. We have to really pay attention to that. Many of us are paying our, our adherences to religions that have existed two, three, four thousand years ago. You haven't created a new one, right? Oh, I believe in this. You have no fact to back up that you have this belief. You just have, quote unquote, faith. That's not a decision. One can say that that's a decision you made. One can say that maybe some people are, pre uh, are somehow genetically predisposed to being to go religious or not or secular i guarantee you if we did enough research on secular people and religious people we would be able to see who remains religious and who re who's secular biologically and how you can turn someone into a secular human being or religious one these behavioral psychologists have all that information what we believe how we believe what we do what neighborhood what <clears throat> what sports teams that we root for or against a lot of it is based on zero to seven years of age a lot of that i'll continue on so 
when this man says that um the news media is increasingly working in service with tech companies and 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 must play by the rules of the attention economy to sensationalize bait and entertain in order to survive that means this is what the human being wants these these companies can respond to the critics saying hey you guys are manipulating us like nah we're just we're just uh we're not manipulating that's not what we're doing our job is to entice you to buy our product and our service and to view our programming and if we know that human beings are genetically predisposed to to look at something that has this in it as opposed to that is that manipulation is that manipulation or is that just identifying certain characteristics that can bring about desirable outcomes for a company. I want you to buy my product. Now, if I have to have a red dot on it as opposed to a blue dot, and I put the red dot in, there's a, if I put the blue on it, there's a propensity that you may buy it. If I put a red, you may not. Then I'm going to go, go with the one that works for me. In a consumer economy, baby, this is how it works. The attention economy. Okay? So... So now this same person, William, who left um, <clears throat> Google last year and is on the cusp of completing a PhD at Oxford, exploring the ethics of persuasive design. He said it's the journey that's led him to question whether, you know, we can um, our intellect will survive this technological age. He said his epiphany came a few years ago when he noticed he was surrounded by technology that was inhibiting him from concentrating on the things he wanted to focus on. It was that kind of individual existential realization. He was like, what's going on? Isn't technology supposed to be doing the complete opposite? He said that discomfort was compounded during a moment of work when he glanced at one of Google's dashboards, a multicolored display showing much of people's attention how much of people's attention the company had commandeered for advertisers. He said, I realized that this is literally a million people that we sort of nudged or persuaded to do this thing that they weren't going to otherwise do. This is very interesting. This is very interesting, people. This is something I'm, I'm glad I went through that. These are all former executives who've started companies and are researching persuasive design, researching take time off, uh, wait till eight, which is an article I'm going to go into probably the next episode. All of this has to do. These are people that designed the technology that we're using. The very same people who created the like button has a has an, has his assistant put parental controls on his phone so he can't even get to his Facebook. Another uh, former employee says they have someone else manage their Facebook. I'm going to I'm going to tell you guys something. And this is real. I'm going to say this from the outset. Um, my personal Instagram page, I will be shutting it down for the so, so for my friends and family who are on there. And it's not a lot because I've cut a lot of social media out of my life. I remember f my Facebook page had almost at its peak, almost a thousand people. And I know many people have many more, but I go through purges where I would just delete random people that have followed me for whatever reason. I would just do that because there was this idea that I didn't want <clears throat> to have this many people quote unquote following me and I wasn't of service or producing a product. I didn't see the purpose of being that digitally popular. I didn't get it. So, so I, the affirmation, it wore off, you know? So, um, I cut off a lot of things on my other social media pages and my Instagram page. I realized I don't need a personal one. I'm going to maintain the whose world is this 2021. That's, that's the page for this podcast, for this conversation. Um, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to keep that. But everything else, I'm going to get rid of it. Because I don't, I, I don't want to be entertained that way anymore at the degree. Because there are times when I'll fall into a situation where I'm have things to do. I'm studying for something and I need a little break from that studying. So instead of me just taking a breather, take a breather. Instead of that breather, what is it that I'm doing? Checking my phone. No, that's not a breather. Taking a minute to fully decompress, think about something totally different on my own, and then 
not thinking about my phone or where's my phone. That's why we're going to talk about that, too. There are people now that are getting rid of their smartphones and the flip phone market is robust again. It's popular again to just have a regular flip phone where you can't do a lot of texting and typing, et cetera, et cetera. I may do that myself. I may get the new iPhone and that'll just be an literally an office phone. An office phone. So that means I use it between a certain amount of time when I'm working. That's the phone I use when I'm working. And then and then I'll keep my um my personal line and I'll switch it over to a flip phone and I'll change my iPhone into a business line. I may do that. I may do something along those lines just so I can have that technology at my employee when I'm overseas or traveling. You know, um, websites and apps like WhatsApp and things are invaluable when you're traveling because you can communicate with people, give them itineraries, full emails, everything while you're on the road, while you're plugged in doing what you have to do. So that why that's why I would always keep a phone like that. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be by my bed. It doesn't have to be by my ears. It doesn't have to be what I look for for the time. I'll go get a regular clock radio, which I'm going to purchase. Purchase, I'm going to purchase a great little clock radio so I'm not using my phone for the time. Dare I say, maybe my phone should be in another room, just like back in the days. We did well for hundreds and hundreds of years without having our phones attached to our ears or our hands. Our phone was in another room. You rang, you went to it. So I may do the same thing. I'm going to, you know, and I think I'm not going to have my phone by my head because, you know, sometimes guess what? Guess what June does, people? Uh, my apologies for speaking about myself in the third person, but sometimes I sleep with headphones on, listening to podcasts and audiobooks. Nah, man. So when do you disconnect? Even me. When do I disconnect? If I'm listening to voices and, you know, dis- all night. I have voices in my head already telling me, do this, do that. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm doing that at one, two, three in the morning. No, no. So this is important for everyone out there to understand what's going on with us. These are adults, educated, af- when I say educated, I mean, these, everyone's going to Oxford and Stanford and Yale. This is pretty much the creme de la creme of our Ivy League Western society. I'm not saying those schools are better, but they're a lot more difficult to get into. Just so you know, you know, so in any case, these are driven, ambitious, intelligent people that are affluent and productive. They've designed the technology that we all know and use and love and and we some of us feel need. And guess what? They're abstaining. They're abstaining. So when I immediately my knee jerk reaction to all this talk about just ban guns. That's what's going on with these babies, ban guns. No, 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 no. Our impulses over our intentions is what's going on here, just like what the article said. When you see these kids, they're having these impulses. Are we paying attention to that? You can't start with, oh, we have to ban the guns. No, what happened in that child's mind? What's been going on? How long have they been plugged in? How long have they been traumatized? How long have they been ignored? Banning the gun in the ghost gun, digital printing of a gun era where you can build a gun in your garage. No, Are you thinking banning it is going to change it. Not, no, we don't know how far the rabbit hole goes as, goes as far as the side effects and the repercussions and the ramifications and the consequences of, of this inundation of technology, consumer technology, short attention span technology, um, 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 immediate uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, immediate uh, gratification, instant gratification technology. Where oh, five second video, haha! The punchline's got to come a lot quicker now, because people are used to people aren't used to that long form George Carlin Chappellean comedy. They want punchlines. I have a friend of mine who's a comedian, and who said he's noticed that people have gotten more impatient with certain long form jokes. In recent years, and he says he blames the advent of these short, short clips that's looking to make you laugh in a half a second, five seconds. Ha ha. Not a long joke with a long punchline or a long sketch. What effect is that going to have in our ability? And I've said this from early episodes. I think within the first 10 episodes, I discussed this, I think. 
What effect is that going to have on our ability to dissect complicated information and, and, and using our deductive reasoning? What effect is that going to have on children, on people looking to, you know, get past their own triggers and things to be able to detect or, or, or like I said, dissect information as opposed to just being clouded by their emotional triggers. And now all of a sudden they're thinking irrationally. Now your rationale is turned off because based on this article, you know, sensationalize in order to survive. That's what's going on here, right? Okay, this is compulsive, irresistible viewing by sensationalizing. Oh, no nuance, sensational. Okay, got it. In any case, people, we'll talk soon. Thank you guys for tuning in. Bye-bye.